Heterodorks. Heterodorks. Dorks. Well, hello, turfs and trannies. You are listening to Heterodorks, episode 95? Goodness gracious. Uh, my name's Corinna Cohn. I am your co-host. I am Nina Paley, your other co-host. And today we have a special guest heterodork of whom I am a slack-jawed, drooling fangirl. It is Helen Joyce. She is director of advocacy at Sex Matters, author of the book Trans, and a former editor of The Economist magazine. Former, not current. Welcome, Helen Joyce. I should say I'm a for- I am a former editor, not the former editor of The Economist, so I was never editor-in-chief. I was a uh, various senior editing jobs. And I have questions about The Economist because it is a mystery because it is the only magazine I've read that has no bylines. So they and lots of we call ourselves a newspaper because newspapers used to be in that format. And uh, The Economist is small C conservative in that it doesn't change things that don't need changing. So basically, it's just stayed in the same format. Obviously, there have been updates to design and bringing colour and photos and things often later than other people. Uh, But also, that's the way newspapers were. They didn't have bylines. Uh, So we just never introduced them. And there are strong benefits to not introducing them in collegiality, in um, the way that journalists work together and uh, give each other you know, help with articles without feeling that they're the ones who are trying to hog or hold their sources and their stories. I mean, that still happens, but less than maybe at other newspapers. So yeah, that's the reason it stayed, because it works. It's the only magazine that I regularly read, and it's the only one that I could think of that did not seem ideologically captured to me. And yet, it is starting to smell. I am starting to dread the capture of The Economist. Am I wrong? Uh, what what triggered me, if you're interested, is this, these articles from the December 3rd issue of last year about sex. And I was like, this, this doesn't smell right. Um, I mean, I haven't been at The Economist since April, so I can't say very much about how those were written. And I would say overall, The Economist has managed to avoid fashionable trends and fashionable dogma don't really feel more comfortable comfortable saying more than that because they've treated me terribly well compared with the way other uh, outlets have treated gender critical journalists so you know I'm very grateful to them and I also think that uh, they've shown considerable bravery because of course the economist's largest market is in America and that means that these things are much harder than they would be for say the times or the telegraph of London where the main market is at home and you know gender critical arguments have made much more progress one of the nice things about not having the byline is that this this wolf and deer effect doesn't happen where when somebody writes something that's offensive and gets published, that all of the social media wolves go in and chase after and separate the deer out from the pack and, and punish it and scare the rest of the deer. But it, it seems like the activists that... Uh, tend to do this against feminists who single them out, isolate them and hunt them down and, and frighten them, that the the gender critical side has not learned how to develop this wolf mentality to separate and, and hunt down and and devour the, the people who are actually being extremely offensive to women. I don't think there's a symmetry. I think that's the thing is, you know, one side just wants 
to be able to state real facts and live according to them and maintain boundaries. And the other side very desperately needs the first side to shut the hell up. And if what you need other people to do is to shut up, you've got to be quite vicious. So I don't think that most women who have the same terribly ordinary views as I do, or indeed men, particularly want to hunt people down. We just want them to leave us alone and stop trying to impose their beliefs upon us. You know, it's the asymmetry between a peaceful agnostic or Quaker or Buddhist or, you know, something like that and somebody who's an actual jihadi. So, yeah, I don't think we want to turn into jihadis, do we? We might need to. I don't think you can. I don't think you can be a jihadi for peaceful coexistence, which is what we're asking for. Like, how? Jihadi for peace. I, but I like that. I think that's a, actually a good t-shirt phrase. Feel free. <laughs> Jihad for peace. I, I sign over my rights. Jihad. Well, there are some excesses in the gender critical side, which have been disappointing to see emerge. Because when I got into this in 2017, the gender critical radical feminist side was, you know, really smart and thoughtful and funny and sane and then it got larger, and now we have a few extremists of our own. I don't deny that, but larger is the answer, isn't it, to that? You know, it's it's not even a movement, it's many movements and many individuals who are sometimes pulling in the same direction and sometimes not. I don't think, um, and, I, and I think this is true, by the way, of the trans activist side, I don't think it's fair to say everybody's as bad as the worst in any group. Uh, you know, I, I would not. I would not look at the people saying, you know, punch turfs or decapitate turfs and say that everybody who argues that sex isn't real and gender identity is thinks of that. So yeah, I mean, I can't deny, yes, there are people who say things I wish they wouldn't. I can't stop them. I'm not the boss of the world. And I don't necessarily think the world would be any better if I was the boss of it. So we just have to keep moving on. Who are some trans activists you respect? Ooh, Ooh that's a tough question. Very few, I have to say. Are, are there any that you don't completely loathe? Um, this is too personal for me. This is too personal. You know, you, you, you don't know what you're doing to me here. Like the people I really, really, really loathe are the ones who tell defamatory lies about me. And all I can mm. do is just try to look away. There's nothing I can do about these people except ignore them. So my approach is to try to just ignore and if I start saying, well, this person's okay and that person's not okay, or by implication, those other people aren't okay because these ones are, I'm just bringing down more grief on my head. It's not worth it to me. Going back to the, the wolves and the deer, I think one thing that you might think about the next time somebody asks you that question is figure out somebody who you really don't like on the trans side and then say, oh, I really respect them. And then I think that all the activists will be like, why did that happen? That's That would be a great technique, Corina, if it turned yeah. out that I had any version of a poker face. So <laughs> earlier this week, several days ago, I sat in as a member of the public on, well, on a parliamentary committee, the Women and Equalities Select Committee, and there were four people giving evidence, two of whom were eminently sensible and two of whom were, in my opinion, completely deranged. And unintentionally, I sat at different points between the two deranged people, and I was actually embarrassed when I watched back afterwards. I didn't know that I rolled my eyes and sniggered and did this sort of eye pop thing when people <laughs> said really crazy things. And uh, yeah, let's put it this way, no poker. So I don't think I could get away with saying something like that, because apparently my thoughts are totally legible on my face at all times. <laughs> 
So when I think about it, I, I am not coming up with a trans activist that I respect, but there's certainly some trans identified people I respect, but they're not what I'd call trans activists. Yeah, that sounds right to me. I mean, trans activism, as the shorthand goes, and I'm, again, I'm not trying to say everybody believes the same thing, but what we mean when we say trans activism is we mean insisting that gender identity, self-stated identity overrides biological sex and that everybody must go along with the consequences of that. To me, it's an inherently unrespectful and unrespectable view. It requires women to be told to shut up when they state their boundaries. It destroys education. It does a lot of you know, inherently bad things. I, I can't imagine respecting that any more than I would respect somebody who said that gay people had to be stoned or you know, women had to be auctioned off at age 12 or... Uh, you know, that you'd be put to death, you'd be burned to death if you didn't uh, say that you believed in a particular God. It's a, it's an extremist, absolutist and offensive mm. viewpoint. So I don't know how somebody could be intellectually respectable and hold those views. So somebody who doesn't hold those views, fine, of course. But, you know, when I say trans activist, that is what I mean. They want to try to erase sex and replace it by self-declared gender identity. To me, that's inherently not worthy of respect. When Ruth Hunt was the director of Stonewall, she changed the mission of Stonewall to, from a focus on lesbian and gays to basically all trans all the time. And there were quite a few trans people who hold views more similar to mine who tried to engage in a dialogue with her because they saw that she was bringing into the organization a lot of extremists who wished to conflate gender identity and sex. And some people similar to, to my views, we're able to forecast that the more that we tried to conflate these things in, in law and policy, the more that we would be subjecting ourselves to a entirely predictable backlash and that it would fall not on the activists, but it would fall on everybody who up to that point had been trans identified. And Ruth Hunt developed this no debate mentality. And it absolutely refused to engage in any other uh, discussions with viewpoints that were outside of the ones that she had handpicked for involvement in Stonewall. And it, it really only took about six or seven years for the conversation to be completely one-sided. So we're turning around a little bit now, but it's, it can't be overstated how much influence these national organizations have in, on, on one hand, setting what the official policy is or the official outlook is, and on the other hand, successfully suppressing other viewpoints and, and making it appear as though there is full agreement throughout an entire community. It's, it's really mind-boggling. It's, it's one of these things that makes me more sensitive and empathetic to people who believe in conspiracy theories. Yeah, same. All of it. All of it. And I don't think it was a conspiracy theory. I think it was smaller and in a way less admirable than that. You know, conspiracy theory is not a good thing, obviously, but it could be aimed at doing something good. You could be trying to do something good. This was just cupidity. So they'd got gay marriage, uh, Obviously, there's always going to be homophobia, just as there is always going to be uh, child poverty, domestic violence, 
you're only ever hoping to reduce those things. You can never eliminate them. And those things are hard to fundraise for. Things that will always be with us are hard to fundraise for. What's easy to fundraise for is a big legislative change that's a one-off thing that gives people with money and power something they want. And it is a fact that men Mm. have more power than women. So gay men in particular have more power because there's there's two of them. And the thing that those gay men wanted was same-sex marriage. And good on them. I'm delighted they have it. But once they got it they weren't going to keep funding people like Stonewall or the HRC to anything like the same extent. And there was also a cohort effect. The people, both male and female, who had campaigned for so long, first to get rid of discriminatory laws, uh, to make the police behave better, and then to get gay marriage, they were ready to retire. So they went, a new cause was needed, new activists came in, people who had been taught what I regard as a load of nonsense in universities were the next generation of young activists um, I guess there were people who wanted to fund trans activism. We know that uh, those yeah. donations are a matter of public record. Um, they came in and it's, it sounds like the same sort of thing as gay marriage. It's a it's a legislative change thing that can be done by fiat. And that's the sort of thing that people like to fund, saying that you will change laws so that your sex is what you say it is, is something that's so much more appealing if you think it's a good thing then, you know, we will give some money to support research into gender dysphoria or help children who are unhappy with their sex to uh, become more at ease with their sex. Those are the same sort of nebulous things that people are less likely to be able to give large amounts of money for. So, yeah, I think it's about money. And and I'll tell you something. In 2013, I had a a very interesting conversation with somebody who was a... um, what do they call them? Development manager, I think is the the term that they use for the people who raise money inside of these organizations. Somebody who was in development for the human rights campaign. And he was quite open about the need to switch the focus from gay marriage to gender equality as a, a means of a fundraising. And by gender equality, he didn't mean make life better for women, did he? Not at all. Yeah. So this is the the euphemism that they like to use to make everything sound like it's uh, something that we should all want. But really, gender equality, when it's spoken by a certain group of activists, what it really means is people who are working to conflate gender identity and sex in policy and law. Yeah, exactly. And I've heard similar stories from lots of people, uh, more in Washington than in London, really, I mean, the the trans lobby groups here were quite small and some of them started very sensible, like Mermaids was a sensible group when it was set up. It was a self-help group by a small number of parents who were going through a highly, highly unusual and distressing situation, namely having children who were super gender dysphoric. And they just found each other and talked. And, you know, if you look back at there are archived documents from early Mermaids like 20 years ago, and they make a load of sense. And then, um, you know, a load of money came in, an activist woman took over at the top, Susie Green, who had transitioned her child extremely young, Jackie Green, little boy. And, you know, a parent like that has has to change the world to accommodate a promise that they've made to their child, a promise they made when, in Susie Green's case, put Jackie on puberty blockers extremely young and then on cross sex hormones extremely young, and then famously got him castrated on his 16th birthday. So a mother who does that has to spend the rest of her life trying to change the world to make it not the worst thing that a mother could have done to her son. And unfortunately, the rest Mm. of us have to step into line to make that promise come true. 
I, I know you can't read minds, but do you think Susie Green is, is tortured? I can't read minds, but I can't imagine that it never worries her that she did the wrong thing because it is the lot of a mother to wonder that she's done the wrong thing. And especially when you make a, an irreversible either or choice. You know, you can think like, oh, I wish I hadn't done X or Y. But when X or Y is going to bring you to, I mean, I presume she thought probably that Jackie might kill himself or something like that, because that's the thing that activists say. Well, maybe not. I mean, she's one of the people who said it a lot, which strikes me as self-justification after the fact. I can't imagine it doesn't occur to her every now and then what would have happened if we hadn't done that. What would have happened if Jackie had just gone into male puberty and had turned out to be a gay boy, which is what she predicted. That's why her husband didn't like it. He said he, was, he said he thought he had a gay boy. This reminds me of the abortion debates long ago that the people who were most adamantly against abortions tended to be mothers. Yeah. And, you know, our thinking was that they actually wished <laughs> that they, like they didn't want to be mothers, right? Like they, they, they had been pressed into it and had regret for that decision, which motivated them very highly to try to prevent abortion as a possibility. That's funny. That's not why, that's not what what I'd say at all. I mean, I think a lot of mothers would be anti-abortion because they know what it is to have a new life inside them. I mean, that's certainly Uh, what I've heard. I mean, I was brought up Catholic and that is what many Irish Catholic women would say, you know, that until you've done it, it's easy to think that this is just a disposable. I'm not anti-abortion, by the way, and I am a mother. I'm saying that, um, you know, we're, we're, it's it's very easy. And I, so I'm, okay, so I'm a bit afraid that maybe I'm doing that to Susie. Maybe I'm looking at her and I'm thinking, what would I think if I were her? Like maybe she's thinking nothing like what I'd be thinking. Like I can't imagine doing what she did and not being tormented for the rest of my life about it. Maybe that's bullshit. But I think... It's easy to look at people who arrive at a different position than yourself, for example, anti-abortion. I think lots of people are anti-abortion because they think the baby is a real human being, a living human being. They're anti-abortion for the same reason they're vegetarian. I don't mean just anti-abortion. I mean the really aggressive, bonkers ones. Yeah, I don't There's know any of, of them. Who they're, are they're a very American yeah. phenomenon, those. Yeah, it's, a, it's yes, an American thing. It's a very American thing. And also, I'm thinking from, really, I'm thinking from 30 years ago. Right. But like, don't worry, we're trying to export it. <laughs> Thanks a bunch. Could you stop? <laughs> but, I, you've done enough harm already <laughs> with your bonkers ideas. So there would be... There would be anti-abortion people, you know, people who didn't favor abortion, but then there would be like the real, like confrontational, the hysterical ones. And those are the ones that it's like, okay, what is going on with them? Yeah. So we just assumed because we can't know. And because people love to assign motives to other people. (laughs) And because if this was 30 years ago, that means I was in my (laughs) twenties where I love to decide everyone was motivated by hate and, you know, their own problems. But at that time it was like, yeah, maybe they just like really regretted being uh, coerced into motherhood that they didn't want. And they're expressing it by trying to prevent anybody from getting an abortion ever. But you know, as I speak, it's like, yes, this, this is something that I did, which is what a lot of young activists do now is when I don't like a position somebody takes, I make up motives for them. And make up very uncharitable motives. I mean, not, I'm not saying about you, I'm saying about everybody and certainly about me too. It's, it's so hard to believe that people can come to diametrically opposite viewpoints on things that seem 
very obvious and important to you and that feel core to what it means to be a good person. And so it's easy to think that they must therefore be bad. They must be bad people. That's why they're doing it. But I, I see this all the time and it bothers me. And in particular, it's what people do to me, of course. Like it's the way that people right. talk about me, that I must be doing this because I'm phobic of this, that and the other. I'm transphobic, homophobic, anti-Semitic, whatever. And I mean, I know that I'm not any of those things and that's not what motivates me. But because something that they hold very dear, they've arrived at a different position than me. They think that I must be a bad person to have arrived at the positions I do. So I try not to do that to other people. Or else they're wolves. A lot of them don't seem to be. They seem to be sheep, frankly. But then here I am again. I'm saying they're just followers. Like I'm, I'm saying that they're just picking up their opinions off the shelf, the fashionable opinions and trying to fit in. Maybe that's not very fair, but I don't think they're very wolf-like, the people I'm thinking about. They just, they're the sort of people who complain if I'm speaking at a conference and that's easy activism. You know, that's not actually putting yourself out of the way or doing anything good for anyone. It's just feeling good about yourself, isn't it? It's very easy for me to explain what's happening as just misogyny. Like, okay, it's people hate women. They don't like women's rights. They don't want women to have any boundaries. They get off on violating women's boundaries. And I don't just mean individuals. I mean the whole like society as a whole, even even including women. Like there are women that don't like women. Yeah. Uh, and there's certainly a load of that about. There's no denying that that's a huge motivation. You can see it in the in the slogans and in the total unwillingness to think forward to the worst case scenarios, for example, prisons. So, I mean, we've obviously here in Scotland, delightfully, finally, people have noticed that people are putting men in women's prisons, including rapists, including torturers, including murderers. And that, uh, you know, Nicola Sturgeon is simply unwilling to say this shouldn't happen in the first minister of Scotland. And it's very enjoyable now that it's happening. But when you say something about it or tweet about it, I don't often look at the replies because they're a waste of space a lot of the time. But when I do, there'll usually be somebody saying something like, you're morally bankrupt. You're focusing on the fact that it was a trans woman and not the fact that it was a rape and I just think like wow like imagine you know imagine being so sure that I'm motivated by 24 hours a day hatred that that's what you could say well I just don't know how you can get to that point yeah. that you think it's not relevant that this person is male it has to be hatred of women it just has to be that we can't even keep rapists out of out of places where we're locked up but why are you so focused on genitals <sighs> I just, I mean, it's just head exploding, isn't it? It, it is. I, I think that's one of the, out of all the bad faith retorts that are on that side, I think that's one of the, the most disgusting ones. But I see it come up. I, um, I wrote an article years ago about fanfic, and for my own newsletter, I went back to look at it again, and I looked back at the websites, the archive of our own and things like that, that I had looked at, Um. And it's funny, it's funny the tropes in articles that aren't anything to do with, not articles, stories, that are nothing to do with identity politics and don't have a trans character. It's nothing to do with that. The same sort of tropes come in about, you know, such and such a, you know, a pansexual character, you know, oh, I should have guessed she'd be pansexual because she doesn't like anything to tie her down. She's not somebody who's into labels, you know? And that's, that's not, <laughs> what? yeah, I know. I mean, that's not like, that's not like hatred. It's not an ideology. It's a sort of an off the shelf opinion. What is it? The gramophone mind. Was it Orwell? Who was it who said that the, the thing we have to be scared of is the gramophone mind that just, you know, play, replays the, the latest opinions, the latest fashionable opinions without yeah. thinking. 
probably wasn't Orwell anyway, whoever it was. Um, and that, and that's just gramophone mind. Like you're, you're writing a fanfic, you've got to pull in characters, you've got to turn, you know, the kids from Harry Potter into grownups some way. And so they're going to be gay. They're going to be pansexual. They go on to be journalists or whatever. And then in come whatever opinions are lying around for you to use. And it comes up with these things. Like there's loads of therapy. There's loads of therapy talk. It's good. It's always good to talk. It's always good to cry. Um, your best friends are your family. Like your family, families are often bad. And people are always saying things oh, to yeah. each other about how, you know, I found my real family and my friends. And it's, 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 it's cultural. These things, a lot of them are cultural broader than any disagreement on trans or gender or whatever so some of the things they say like you're focused on genitals that's a real off-the-shelf opinion that you don't have to be a trans activist to spew out at inappropriate moments it's like i don't like labels i don't like to pin myself down i'm i'm, I'm above noticing things like that sounds good i don't think any of them do, do actually you know follow through frankly as i've tried to understand why this stuff has happened particularly why these things have happened to me, these repeated cancellations and loss of long friendships and being denounced by people who I thought were my friends. Uh, humans, this is how humans think. Humans think groupishly. Absolutely. They, they just do. And I, you know, on the one hand, I'm angry. It's like, why don't you think for yourself? But on the other hand, it's like, well, nobody really thinks for themselves. And I also wonder so much, like, how did I end up on this side of things? And how did these other people I know end up on the other side of things? Like, am I, am I like really different from them or are we the same, but I just found my neighbors to be ever so slightly different and so got flipped over in this part of the Othello board, you know? I don't know if you know that game. Yeah, yeah. Othello, they flip the things over, but it I'm, has to do with who your neighbors are. I mean, anything that's this common, you know, this this regurgitation of opinions and this group mentality and this way that new ideas come up and then they get taken on, it has to be evolved. And that makes sense. Like, you know, we clearly didn't evolve to be right. We evolved to be a mixture, the right mixture for survival, of right and fitting in. So it, it's not actually very helpful in a small tribal group of 100 to say 300 people to be right if everybody else disagrees with you. It's better to be cohesive. And a lot of what you have to learn, you can't possibly learn from first principles. You just have to take what poisons you, what sort of animal is dangerous, where it's safe to be, those sorts of things. You have to learn those things as a child. And then those things automatically will accrete nonsense in them. You know, you'll mm. you'll be doing certain things to foods that make them non-poisonous, but you'll be doing things to other foods yeah. that are just this just developed. And there's no time and it's not an energy it's not a useful use of your time and energy to try to pick those apart. But you do also need to be right. You need people who at least sometimes say, Well, why are we doing it this way? Would there be a better way of doing it? Because that's also going to be selected for in survival. So I reckon we're at the point. Human brains are where they should be in terms of evolution for surviving in that sort of um, environment. Now, when, now, then you say, well, what about this new environment where we're in much larger groups? We've got social media. It's a highly unnatural environment around us. It's very technological. So right is obviously going to be more rewarded in a very technological environment. They're the people who become billionaires on occasion. They're the people who get the, the planes to fly, the trains to run, you know, discovering new medicines, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so there's the change in the environment, but there's also the spread of ideas 
faster and wider. And then, I mean, the pack mentality, as Corina said, I mean, social media is set up for that. It's set up to create it. Like people would have shunned people in a, a small tribal set setting and it would have meant death. So you mustn't be shunned. So we're still shunning, but we're doing it at the scale of millions or hundreds of millions on social media. And okay, you don't die, but it feels like it, doesn't it? Yeah, you can even get the prime minister to go along with that pack. Yeah, because it feels like you're going to die. That's what happens when you're cast out. It's what's happened through nearly all of human prehistory and history. So why did we not? I mean, I think we should probably not ascribe too much brilliance and, you know, specialness to ourselves. <laughs> like maybe we're as dumb on other things and as group thinky on other things. But then also... Oh, we are. I'm not... I mean, we, we definitely, yeah, we definitely, because you you can't, you can't think for yourself on absolutely No, you can't possibly. I mean. Yeah. So we, so we are, but I mean, you'd, you'd like to hope that the experience of being cancelled on one thing would maybe make you more charitable on others. I mean, there's not much in human history that makes me think that. Like, it doesn't look to me like people who lose wars or who are at the rough end of hideous pogroms and so on come out of it braver and better people. They come out traumatized is what they come out so I don't know that it's right to say that we might have learned something from it. But there's also the thing that, you know, even when in, when you've got an evolved capacity, like fitting in versus thinking for yourself, people vary. So, I mean, we could be people who are unusually disagreeable, uh, unusually prone to reflexively saying, possibly because it irritates other people. Why do you think that? You know, I don't think I was ever very contrarian, but it's clear that a bunch of the people who think like we do are contrarian, specifically contrarian. Yes, it's it's uh, arguably a personality defect. Yes, that we tend to share. Yes, but like like trait. a lot of person, that's a trait. Yes, yeah, so like a lot of things. I was about to say it's good or bad according to what's put in front of you, as would be the case in the tribal society. Like if the rules that you've learned are reasonably good and things aren't too harsh, going along to get along is clearly the right thing to do. But when the tribe is facing extinction because things have changed, probably. It's better to be the person who is willing to try new things and to stand up against others and so on. Yeah, well, if we if we went back 100,000 years, there are going to be people like us who said, you know, I don't think that it's good enough that we just bury ourselves at night under these layers of hides. I want something a little bit better. And everyone else is going, why do you want to stir the pot? I don't... This this thing that you're talking about about building a fire indoors this is this sounds terrible I I hate this yeah yeah but then on the other hand and, those and people will say stupid going, things yeah. a lot of the time like a lot of the time they come up with something that's worse a lot of the time they throw babies oh, out with true. bad bathwater you know like these things are I I'm not I'm not trying to say group selection which is of course heresy and incorrect in evolution I'm trying to say that traits are selected for in groups in societies. And it, it can be that what's stable is a range on a particular trait. And I think mm. that's true of agreeableness or disagreeability, which might be the right word for what we're talking about here, or contrarianism. Have you read the have you read the book The Secret of Our Success? No, I haven't. What is it? It's it's about it's about the unique human capacity to think in groups that we are not actually that intelligent compared to other animals. In fact, in many ways, we're less intelligent than other animals. But what we have is this enormous social capacity, which allows us to share knowledge. And you know, most of, most of what a smart person has in their head is not anything that they figured out as an animal. It's just stuff that they received socially through their social capabilities. That makes a lot of um, sense. Uh, 
a lot of sense. Yeah. And it's it's one of the reasons that it's been so frustrating to try to think about something when there's a no debate ethos going on edict. Um, because I can't think when I'm not speaking and speaking out loud to myself is not what I'm talking about here. I mean, I mean, I, I'm in a constant conversation. I'm in a dialogue and it's been so important to me to have a group of women and some men, but mostly women to talk to about these things because people are always saying something that I didn't think of before. Like it's literally never been the case that I've done a podcast, for example, that someone hasn't asked me a question that has stimulated a thought I wouldn't have had on my own or has told me a bit of information I didn't know or taken me down a line of questioning I'd never have found. And so all the people who are sitting silently, like we all know the people who say, I've been lurking, I've never said a word. Like, okay, they're watching a dialogue going on, but they're not in dialogue. You can't be. Um, so they're not thinking as well as human beings can, nowhere near. And that's one of the things that's holding us back. It's one of the reasons that we're not finding solutions, because obviously there are solutions to this. We don't have to be in a constant state of warfare over reality, and we don't have to exclude people who want to have special accommodations. But we can't get there if we're not allowed to talk about it, because we can't think about it then. That is a really good point. It is hard right now in the United States to find people who value freedom of speech, freedom of expression. So I'm finding myself like trying to explain why it's important. And I think that your explanation was very good. It's painful, isn't it? It makes, yeah, it makes us so dumber. It makes us collectively stupid. Yes, yes. And polarization, you know, like polarization that. specifically makes conversation and speech stupid and therefore makes thinking stupid. Like we talk about how polarization, political polarization in the US makes people hateful. Like, you know, we ascribe bad motives to people who are on the other side of the aisle, but it also makes us dumb because it limits what we hear, the potential inputs that we get to just our own group and the same on the other side. And then those groups spiral off and it gets worse and worse. Whereas if they were talking to each other, you would expect both are coming together, but also smarter, you know, more good thoughts. Yeah, You don't have to really ar argue this too aggressively because it's just common sense. And you can see what but happens if you, if you don't look at it. You can, but some people are so afraid of having these sorts of difficult conversations that it's, it's almost like a pain for them. I think it, that's completely correct. It's painful having your opinions challenged. It is for everybody. And I want to say something about that, but I also want to say that there's a totally different way of thinking about speech which I think is unfortunately becoming more and more common, which is that speech is what creates reality and you already know where you think reality should be. So speech is how you affect change, not how you come to a better understanding. So if you're one of those people, you think that there's a perfect utopia, utopias are all perfect, sorry, uh, where if you could just describe it and force everybody else to speak as if it was already in existence, it would be in existence. So that's the, that's the, you know, I must silence my enemies because my enemies' bad words make bad reality. And I know where I want to end up. And if I speak and only I'm allowed to speak, the world would be perfect sort of view of speech. But yeah, so yesterday... And would you agree that... Sorry, I just, uh, the other thing I was going to say about that, sorry, it was two totally different answers. But yesterday I was speaking oh. to a bunch of psychoanalysts. So it was really interesting. I went to two conferences yesterday, had to split the day between them. And the reason I went to the first one, which was uh, New Lacanians talking about what gender and trans mean. And I mean, I didn't even know what a Lacanian was, let alone a new Lacanian. But anyway, mm. it's the first time that I had seen um, medical 
people or therapists of any sort to talk freely and get people like me in to talk. So I said yes. And the morning was people like me, um, people who have studied the Tavistock and what happened there and therapists who have been critical of the way the Tavistock went. And at the end of all of this, a young man stood up and he was shaking and he was close to tears. And he said that this wasn't what he had expected of the day, that he had felt that, you know, this was horrible, that it was hateful. You know, he, he said that we were because you know that therapists are traumatized by the experience of what they did to gay people. And a lot of them are very afraid that they're about to do the same thing again if they are at all critical of trans. Like if they say that it, they, they think a trans person is exactly the same as a gay person, a naturally occurring phenomenon that you just let happen. And of course, they're very different phenomena. So that's not helpful, but right. that's what motivates them. They're, they're afraid of absolutely screwing up as a profession again. So I understand what he was saying, but it was emotional blackmail what he was doing. He was saying, I'm very distressed now. And you're, like, you're a therapist, mate. Like, it's not about you. <laughs> specifically it's not about you but yeah so he was afraid that by speaking we were killing children basically and then you can't speak can you i'm sorry i interrupted you corinna you were asking me another question no not not at all because i think that actually answers what i was about to ask is this viewpoint that speech constructs the world would you say that that is the fundamental concept in postmodernism yeah i mean that is that is the a way of saying the postmodern turn isn't it that speech constructs reality rather than describes reality. And, you know, like as someone who never studied any postmodernism except what I waded through from my book and who did mathematics and is a firm Platonist on the mathematical front, we do not create our theorems, we discover. We, we state truisms, they just weren't obvious truisms. That's what a theorem is. Uh, then, you know, I know which side I come down on. I do feel we describe reality, but I have to accept that, no, we also create it. Like our words make change, our worlds change, our words change the world. So it seems obvious to me that it's both and that you can try to describe the world. You can try to shape the world with words. But if your words are simply too unmoored from reality, bad things will happen or else they won't make any difference. My thing is like, just don't force other people's words. I so agree. I so agree. I, I, I would... Say any stupid thing you want. You can be as dumb as you want. <laughs> but don't silence others. And that's that's a bit of writing advice I give to people. Don't try to write well. Because if you try to write well, you're you're already censoring yourself as you write. Just try to write. Don't get it right, get it written, James Thurber said. And then mm. you can edit. So after the conference, so, so the other conference that I was at yesterday was the Women's Place UK one, which was great. And then I had dinner with a couple of young students afterwards. And um, a particular person came up, uh, a trans woman who calls me a Nazi and various other attractive things like this. And this is not somebody I dignify with the pronoun she. Uh, I, I'm, anyway, so one of the other people referred to this woman as this trans woman as she and then looked at me and I said, you call you call them what you like. I'm not telling you how to speak about this person. And then we had this really interesting conversation about how, you know, this is not something any of us know in person. Um if you talk about this person as she, that does create thoughts in your mind that in this case are just completely incorrect. This person is an aggressive, hideous man. But on the other hand, like, just get the fucking words out. Just speak. Like, once you speak, we can start talking. And we had an interesting conversation because this person just said what they thought. And if they had stopped, they probably wouldn't have said anything because they'd have been afraid in front of me to say anything at all. Well, I make the world a better place by uh, correctly sexing Corinna almost all the time, sometimes not. 
that I don't know that makes the world world better, Nina. It just makes it different. Makes it. I'm making. I'm bringing about utopia, Corinna. <laughs> Through bloodshed. I, Could you try something else? Luck. Could you try, you know, I have a million dollars or, um, you know, world peace, like Miss Congeniality. No, this is the only, this is the only utopia I can afford. Just <laughs> publicly, correctly sexing Corinna. Sometimes, except for when I slip up. Yeah. Sorry, world. We can't be 100% perfect. We'll anger the gods. Uh, we haven't brought it up recently, Nina, so I just want to inject for anyone who's surprised by you calling me he and him. I ask people to use whatever language they use. I I expect people to be the owners of their own words and whatever people choose to use is what they're going to use. I don't think that it profits me at all to dictate to other people what language they use to describe me. That doesn't help me and it doesn't help me. I completely agree. I just wanted to say that. We haven't said that in a while. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of people don't understand. And it's strange because we'd understand it about anything else. We'd understand it about even things that are incredibly fundamental to people like religion. I remember when I was still at The Economist, a colleague who's not there anymore either, and he's a, he's a you know, quite sincere high Anglican. So, you know, imagine something rather like Episcopalian or even, you know, yes. smells and bells type Catholic. And he um, he said something, I forget what was happening. And he said, well, you know, I'll pray for you. And I said, well, I don't have a soul. And by the way, you don't have one either. And he smiled and he said, but, you know, <laughs> yeah, I know you think you haven't, but God knows you do. And I do too. And the pair of us laughed and on we got with our days as good friends. So, you know, that's where I am on these things. We can be like that. And we don't need to be mean, but it really requires both people accepting that what goes on in the other person's heads is really for them to own. For sure. How do you how do you compare the United States and Turf Island uh, in terms of oh just these issues right so we we are watching y'all from over here and cheering but you know, it's like these are very different countries yeah. different in size what what advice I guess would you have for us Americans. So I suppose there are two there are two questions there really. Like why is Turf Island Turf Island and what can America do to be more like Turf Island? And I think um I think there's a couple of pages in my book about why Turf Island. And they're not things that it's easy to copy because it's the right size is one of them. Ireland Ireland fell without a blow because it's small and it got captured by international NGOs that were trying to sell gender self-ID all over Europe to the 30-something countries that are covered by the Council of Europe. And they won with first Malta, which is useless because Malta is a corrupt basket case. And then they won with Ireland, which has this friendly global image. I think it can be very corporatist, if not quite corrupt, but anyway, it looked good. So Ireland was too small. It fell without a fight. And America, it looks like might be a bit big and a bit um, varied. So it's harder to organize yeah, okay, so Edinburgh isn't massively near London, but by America's standards, it's very near and we can get together. Um, there's too few women really in Ireland to organise. Of course, they're doing it and brilliant and they'll get there. But here there's just a bigger pool to draw from. So that cluster of getting a few hundred people within which you can find people with the expertise that you need, whatever it is, and that you can relatively easily find yourself a public lawyer or a constitutional lawyer or you know someone who knows the history of lesbianism or what happened at Stonewall. You can find those people. It's harder in a smaller country. 
Um, I think that the way feminism, um, movement feminism, was so different in the two countries has played a big a big role. Like American feminism is hyper individualist and identitarian, you know, very focused on symbolic things like numbers of women and CEO who are CEOs, whether uh, female film stars are paid the same as male film stars. And I mean, obviously, these things are the result in part of sexism, but they're not where I'd start. You know, I'd start with maternity leave and protections for mothers in the workplace and thinking about the jobs where there are more women and how you can make those better places for people to have a family at, that sort of thing. But that's not the way American feminism has gone. And it basically is the way British feminism went. So there was a much more reality-based communitarian with links to unions and organising group of women, left-wing women. And I mean, I'm not one of them. I'm not left-wing and I was never in that movement. But those women were crucial and they were crucial to not being able to write the anti-gender movement off as uh, right-wing. We're much less religious. And I mean, this is a new religion. We don't have the wars over healthcare, guns or abortion that you guys have that have polarised you so badly. So I think any new thing that comes along now will get seized on by one side or other in America and the other side will hate us because the other side got there first. We just don't have that dynamic. Yep. So that's all a way of saying, good luck, you're going to need it. <laughs> I mean, The what, other thing that we have here is, is uh, our legacy of slavery, our more recent yes, one. Yes, I should have said that one. Genderism plays on so very directly. Absolutely. It's like white guilt is a legit thing here. And for some reason, people decided that trans is like trumps that that you can you can get out of your white guilt by centering trans voices or something and and that's not the only directly that's not the only connection the other connection is that separate but equal has a hideous hideous legacy for americans that men and women are separate but equal Not in most situations, we don't need to be, but in some situations, for example, sport, the only way we can be equal is if we're separate. That is an argument that is almost unstatable for anyone good in America. It's the most, it's like, it's like, it's like what was, what's, what was said over the um, concentration camps, work will make you free, was it? You know, it's like, it's it's like, it's that poisonous statement. Like imagine trying to rehabilitate that. And here we are saying, look, Women cannot be free except by on occasion being separate and uh, or equal without being separate. And that is just a hard sell for Americans for historical reasons. But it's true. Maybe we should split up and create two countries here and then we could have like the, the smart people go to one of the countries. There's smart people on both sides of this. And that's one thing I'm sure of. No, no, we're we're, we're the smart people. I'm pretty sure about that. We're the righteous and just. We're on the right side. Do you of like history. the film? Then do you like the film, <laughs> The Princess Bride? I love it. Yeah. So one of my favourite lines in it is when Prince Humperdinck, before you realise he's bad, but you st- but you can, you've worked out that he's a twat, and he's uh, he's trying to find Princess Buttercup, and he's he's following her tracks, and he says, "Unless I'm wrong, and I am never wrong, they went this way." Anyway, that's where we are. <laughs> hey, that's what Posey Parker says. She says, or she says, I never lose. She does, yeah. Well, good on you. She's saying it to keep her spirits up, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I hope she's right. Yeah, I do too, of course. And I think we'll she's an see. amazing, amazing activist. I'd be interested to think, how did she How did she land in America? Like, how did it go down? Because I can't tell from here. Uh, I, 
So I had one friend that went to the Chicago thing. I mean, they were, they were attacked and shouted down and really treated aggressively by street activists. But my friend in Chicago said that all she did was walk a little distance away from all the noise that the trans activists were making. And then all these passersby were saying, what's going on? What's all that racket? And then she said, yeah, there's some women trying to speak and gained sympathy from every single passerby. But uh, I mean, it sounded pretty dangerous at a lot of these yeah the thing that worries me and a lot of women were scared to come yeah what worries me is the reporting of it the reporting is so unbelievably biased in america like so much worse than here so 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 much that's another reason by the way for turf island we have national newspapers and they're fairly and you know fairly ballsy and controversial and willing to go there so i'm not saying and that's good sometimes but it can be very populist and you know just hundreds and hundreds of pictures of migrants arriving in little boats and whipping up sentiment type stuff. But it means that you haven't got like these different newspapers that represent these coastal cities. And then this vast swathe of people who really don't feel at all associated with those people in the middle. We don't, you know, it's the same paper. You choose your paper according to roughly where you are on the political spectrum. Sure. But then it's a national paper. So it's a much broader, it's much more uni- it's a much more uniting thing our media yours is a very divisive thing but yeah i mean what what you need is one of the, one of the other things that posey says and i quote her on this in my book is that all we have to do to win is let the trans activists speak but if they're not amplifying these horrendous men shouting at women for having boundaries who gets to hear about it it gets reported as both yeah. sides there was trouble you know some violence broke out at an anti trans rally you know that's not helping us any no, I, I I think that's a good strategy just to let them speak. I, I'm hoping that that'll work in Scotland. Oh, it's doing really well in Scotland. Oh, yeah. I'm absolutely. so enjoying it. I mean, it's been years of work for the women up there. You know, I've been talking to women in Scotland for four years now, and they were they were working on this first. Like, they've seen this coming. Scottish, it's so corporatist and incestuous Scottish politics. It's just this hand to, like... Uh, each person's hand in the other person's pocket approach between government and the um, the favoured NGOs. Like the government pays them money to produce a ridiculous report, which it then uses to lobby government. And government says, oh, civil society wants it. And that's the policy we'll have. Just a merry-go-round, a little merry-go-round around Holyrood, the parliament. And so London's a lot better than that. Ireland can be a bit like that. It's just a small country thing. So that's one of the reasons why Scotland has gone so mad on this. In the U.S., we are sort of screaming into the void to try to get press. Yeah. And it's like, I think we just have to keep screaming. I think there's no other choice. What else can you do? I mean, and you're, yes. and you're getting some. So we just scream and scream. Yeah, but the New York Times has really moved. It's really, really doing better work now. And you know what? I don't mind an article that six of one and half dozen of the other that presents the people I think are good on this issue and then the people I think are bad on this issue. I believe it's so clear cut that we shouldn't be sterilizing children, that it's not fair to women to put rapists in women's prisons and sport. I don't mind an article that's a thousand words of this person worries that we're sterilizing children and a thousand words of this absolute bloody lunatic thinks it's a good idea. Because I think anyone reading that, like 90% of them will come out on the right side. So I just want more articles like articles that are have any truth in them, any proper journalism. Yeah, 90%, I think, will come out on the right side, and even yeah. maybe up to 55% of the New York Times readers. Oh, you look at the comments, even on the New York Times, the comments are overwhelmingly, we should not be doing this, I'm not anti-trans, I know lots of trans people. Like, 
that's the genuflection that you have to make before you're allowed to say very sensible things like not sterilize children. I've stopped doing that because, you know, it it doesn't save anybody. They don't forgive you if you say up front, I'm not anti-trans. You have to do the whole, you have to believe the whole catechism, all of it, 100%. So I'm not doing any of the genuflecting anymore. I admire that. Nice. Yeah. So I'm going to take a risk of looking like a self-serving idiot here, but do you know about the comic book that I made? Yes, I, I made do. a turfy comic book. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it got canceled, which you probably know by the crowdfunding platform. And I'm I'm screaming louder, I guess. Uh, it's very frustrating, but I want to bring attention to this and I might fail. But do you think that I mean, I have this idea that like just the existence of this comic would somehow help, would somehow be a contribution. <laughs> I think people all uh, that people all make the contribution that they do. I don't think you can be too strategic about your contributions because it has and, and this is this is going to sound sentimental, but I'm not at all being sentimental here. I'm being very hard headed. I don't think you can do the thing that you can't do. Like if you're not the person who can, you know, analyze the law and put in the legal argument that might make a difference, you can't do that. You're somebody else. You do the thing that you do. And there's some of the some of the things that I've seen, they're super creative. Like there's a woman who 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 gets some um, very dark stones, varnishes them, and then and um, puts the words on them in all sorts of slogans and gives them out at events. And now she's got quite well known in my circles. And like who could say how that's rippling out? you know, how those make conversation pieces on tables or, uh, you know, cheered somebody up at just the moment they needed or whatever. Like the spirit moved her that way. So she should do that because that's the other thing. When it's not your thing, you won't do it. If you were to say, I should be doing something more hard headed, you just bloody won't do it. So do the thing that you do and do it wholeheartedly. And, you know, who knows? It goes out into the void. It's messages in a bottle, isn't it? You don't know how to be picked up or heard, but you just do your thing. Little varnished stones. And there's people who do other I've ones. Seen them. I've seen pictures. And there's a woman who does, <laughs> I love these, she crochets little vulvas. <laughs> so the spirit moves people different ways. Well, we're trying to make a contribution here. And I, I yeah. guess actually I'll, 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 uh, I'll ask this because I think one of the problems that our side has, and I'm not speaking necessarily to you two, but I'm speaking to you listener, let's break the fourth wall here, you, um, (laughs) is we all have friendships outside of this particular issue. But how often is it that we have reasonable conversations with people to say, yeah, I'm really invested in this. And one of the things that I'm doing is, you know, me personally, I, I talk to policymakers once in a while and try to give them some guidance. How often is it that we're having conversations outside of our echo chamber to try to let the people in our orbits know that there's some really important uh, discussions that need to need that we need to have. Like how many people are listening to this saying, thank goodness there's other voices that I can relate to out there. I wish I could have this in my day-to-day life, but just, just aren't doing it. So Helen, Mm. I know that this hasn't been your milieu for uh, years and years and years now, and that you've got all sorts of friends and um, 
your kids have have parents that you're probably friendly with. How do you introduce this topic in a way that people know that it's important to you and that you have a viewpoint on it, but without alienating them? Right. So I'm the wrong person to ask because I'm the most out person in the world on this. Like my name is on the book. So well, nobody doesn't true. know what I think. You see what I mean? But I, I, I would I say... Um, I would but there say was a before that happened. There was a before that happened and it was difficult. I think it's important not to start it from the point of view of there's this thing that's very important to me and you have to understand it. I think you're already failing in a conversation when you go into it mm. with that one-sided attitude. I think... Um, and this is very important to your children in particular, especially if your children have been indoctrinated at school. You know, they've been preloaded with a bunch of thoughts about you, that you're a bigot, that you're backwards, that you're the wrong side of history, that you're going to die out soon, you're a dinosaur, whatever. So you've got to listen as well. So you've got to say, you know, what do you think about this? I saw this thing and it worried me. And then shut up and listen. And then just drop another little thing in, like, did you see that thing about, um, you know, that if children go down this gender medicine path really early, like it seems to be irreversible. What do you think? Shut up and listen. And I think, you know, having spouted for at least two thirds of the last hour, I think that's very hypocritical of me to say, but like listen much more than you speak. But the other thing I'd say is why do you need to persuade the people around you? Um, it feels to them like you're the person who's joined a cult it feels to them that you're the person who's gone off to the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Moonies or something, and now you're trying to convert them too. And I don't think that's a fair description of what you're doing, but it feels like that. So the walls go up. How influential are those people? Does it matter that they agree with you? I've got people close to me who don't agree with me, and we've just agreed not to talk about this at all. And that's tough because most of the people close to me do agree with me. So they're the ones who feel like the outsiders. And I don't like that, but I don't know what to do about it. I think that we've reached the point on this, that the conversations that matter are the ones that can have influence. And that means focusing on institutions rather than people. So I was talking the other day to a woman who works for a school organization, like one of the organizations that provides services to schools. And she's young and 100% of her friends are they, thems, pansexual, blue hair types. And when she goes into work, she's giving hard-headed legal advice to school leaders which in this country, the hard-headed legal advice is pretty good, unlike in bits of America. And she just keeps the two parts of her life separate, as is professional to do. And she doesn't talk about it among her friends because she just thinks that this is not a good use of her finite energy, emotional capacity to cope. And I thought that was a good, a good um, bit of advice for her. Now, she's a woman in her 20s, so it's a bit different for the rest of us. If you have friends who are able to be more open-minded than many people in their 20s are currently able to be. But I'd be a bit strategic about where you put your limited time. Um, and I would listen and I would ask, like, why do I... Yeah, sorry, another conversation I had was with a woman who's very active in these things, but her husband doesn't agree. And she says... He doesn't agree. He doesn't disagree. He just thinks it's stupid. And she says, I, you know, I really want him to understand why this is so important. And I'm like, why? You know, he's not stopping you. You can just let him work it out himself over the next few years by reading the papers. You put your effort where your effort will, will get results. I have a friend I spoke to yesterday who has decided that he just will not say anything when his friends go off the rails uh, saying stuff that he thinks is ridiculous 
and stupid that he has chimed in before and he doesn't want to anymore because they don't want to hear him. And I was saying like, well, could you just find a way to just say something just say like, well, I don't really agree with this. And I think that, and then just leave it there yeah. because your friends deserve to know that you don't think like them, but you also don't want to try to persuade them. You won't persuade them. But if they just know that and you're very friendly and loving still that that's good for them. It's good for them to know that. That's very good advice. Not everybody around them thinks like that. Yeah, them. that is very, yeah. very good advice. And then if somebody wants to come back to you, they can. They can come back and say, oh, you know, maybe you said this thing a few months ago. Like, it's a very bad idea to hound people who are trying to pull out of a conversation with you. Like, let them go. Like, give them what you want, which is intellectual space and freedom. Don't expect mm. other people to come around to your way of thinking when you don't like them doing that to you. Where I would say the complete opposite is when people have professional responsibilities. We are only here because a lot of people have stayed silent when it was their job not to stay silent. So anyone who's working in child protection, education, university departments, which are meant to be beacons of free speech, all of those people, like literally millions of people, tens of millions in a country the size of America, have not done their damn job when part of their job meant saying things people didn't want to hear. So that's where I think people should put their effort um, you know, don't try and persuade your husband if he's not interested and he just wants to read about the sport. But if you're in work and there's people putting boys and girls and sleeping accommodation together on the trip away, you know, you signed something that should be treated like an oath to say that you would not put children in danger. That's where your effort has to be. That's where you've got to persuade people. A couple of episodes ago, I made a prediction for 2023, which is that we would see finally a split between the gender critical community. Uh, One side would be more of the JK Rowling type, fundamentally uh, liberal, and that the other group would be uh, following along with the more of the Kelly J. Keene set, which is fundamentally populist. And that Mm. one of the, one of the splits that I see, and, and I'm hearing you say something that reminds me of this, Helen, is you say, don't don't worry about trying to persuade the populace. Try to focus on the institutions. Whereas I think the other view is to don't worry about the institutions because they're captured. We need a populist movement to to discredit and destroy the institutions That's and reform the institutions. I, I, I wonder, is Kelly J really that that populist? I mean, she's certainly called populist, but I don't think, I mean, we get on great with her at Sex Matters and we're the people who are the most boring, you know, here's a letter you can write to your children's school pointing out that school regs 2006 say that you must have, you know, recording sex in this particular format, whatever. And, you know, we don't disagree with her at all. We see these things as complementary. I would say that there could be a split and I hope there won't be because it would be very painful between um, people who see the fight against gender identity as inevitably and only a part of a certain sort of movement feminism. So something that's got a whole um, ideology behind it that you have to swallow all of it, basically. Uh And those are people who are not very committed to free speech. Like they have many, many strengths, but free speech is not their interest. It's not what they put centre and so they're 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 what they would call disciplined. Do you know what disciplined means? Like on the left wing of politics, 
No. <laughs> it means casting people out, you know, when they don't play along or when they like it's very it, it's very um uncongenial to somebody like me who believes that if all of us can speak as freely as we can we it looks like chaos but we get somewhere better and then a much larger group of women and men um who who just think like you know I don't call myself a this I don't call myself a that I don't call myself a feminist I'm not on the left but I worry about kids and I think sex is real and you know, and to the extent that feminists feel that they own the answer to this problem and that the only answer is the end of the patriarchy or something like that, they will alienate the much larger group of people who don't use words like patriarchy, don't see what's wrong with being a stay-at-home mom, don't think that men oppress women in any meaningful sense anymore in the West, whether they do or not, this is what people think, I'm just saying. Right. Don't think that we have to sign up to ideas about abortion or... um you know, left-wing politics in order to stop genderist nonsense. So that's the split. That's the split worries me because these feminists are very good organizers and they're the people who are doing have done, and have done the most. But the very large group of people are also the people who have to fight this. So I've even heard people say, you know, I'm not with that group over there if they aren't feminists. If they don't call themselves feminists, I'm not on the same side as them. I'm like, I'm on the same side as everybody who wants to stop sterilizing children pretty much. We can go on to disagree about other things afterwards. And I'm not saying that there's, that I would literally yeah. do anything to stop it. But, you know, there's just a huge range of reasons that people are against gender bullshit. Well, that's interesting to me, if you don't, don't mind me uh, just adding this viewpoint here, which is that I, I haven't used the word disciplined before, but I will say that among that latter group, I know that there are some people within it who are very happy to scapegoat people like me yeah. as if you if you even maintain any friendships with people who are trans you are not trustworthy to be part of this movement even even though i'm very clear about not wanting children to undergo any of these procedures and uh am quite on the opposite end of a, a lot of the uh louder trans people and trans activists in this movement. But I am I am a threat to cause an impurity if I am accepted as one of the people who's a, a critic of of some of these things. Yeah, I, no, I'm aware of that. And yeah, what can I say? Hundreds of millions of people, some nasty and stupid ones. There is a crisis of cowardice going on uh, among institutional leaders and directors and things like that. And this friend and I were discussing Jordan Peterson's campaign against anonymity online. Mm. And just for the sake of argument, I took Peterson's position, which I generally, I don't, I don't personally oppose anonymity online. But the more I was taking his position, the more I thought, you know, these mobs tend to be anonymous. There's like incredible destruction that occurs anonymously. And there would be a huge price to pay if people lost their anonymity online. But it would change things so, I mean, there would probably be surprises in the changes. It's like, would that would that reduce cowardice? Like, like has anonymity online given people like the expectation of that, that they can be cowards? You're shaking. Yeah. Your head, I, so I no. just don't see the connection between what I regard as the most 
dangerous forms of cowardice and what causes that and anonymity online. Like anonymity online, the bad thing about it is this mob that it enables. People are so much nastier when they're behind an alias. And I I, I think that's a huge problem. I think it's part of a lot of problems online. Um, you know, the short attention spans, the spiraling out of to, to more and more extreme opinions and the forming of tribes and epistemic bubbles and so on. But I don't think that we have to react to online mobs the way we do. I think we're going to have to get used to them. I think it's idiotic that companies pay attention when there's a pile on online. Just don't pay any attention. It goes away. Like, crying out loud. You, you, can, you can always just say nothing, nothing at all. Like the few times when I was at The Economist that people tried to get me fired, seriously tried to get me fired, either by writing or by piling on online, the editor just ignored them. And they went away. Like, this is an option. The big reason that people are cowards is because they're afraid, not because they're anonymous. And what they're afraid of isn't entirely uh, invented. They're afraid of losing their jobs. They're afraid of losing their livelihoods. And that's the biggest problem, that people think that if they say anything, they will be targeted. So anonymity, getting rid of anonymity won't help with this in the slightest. What we need is, I mean, God... So I feel like I'm writing a leader for The Economist and, you know, you're never allowed to just say people must be better and governments must spend more. Like, that's the pointless leader. Like, you could just do that for everything. So people must be better. Like, stop sacking people when they say what they think, for God's sake. So, I mean, anything that increases the norm that it is unacceptable to hound people out of their livings, that it's unacceptable to do whisper campaigns, to... um you know, to give people speech codes at work and and not just like Americans tend to think that free speech is about what the government does because of the First Amendment, isn't it? The, But I mean, free speech is a much bigger thing than that. Free speech is a is an ethical commitment that you make every day of your life in every part of your life. And I think committing to free speech much more is what's needed because then people won't be so afraid. They won't be so afraid of the consequence of speaking. Now, some of those people will then not be anonymous. So a lot of the people I know started online as anonymous. I mean, Emma Hilton, who is one of the most important figures in trying to solve sport, she was Dr. Fonda Beatles with no uh, no affiliation for quite a while. And I was talking to her in DMs when I was at The Economist because this was someone who clearly knew what they were doing and asking her for information before I knew who she was. And she came out, in effect, at an event in London about three years ago at which Sharon Davies, the Olympian swimmer, was. she was there and Emma... Emma said, I, that's me, you know? So I know what you say, that there would be, you accepted that there would be downsides to losing anonymity too. But Emma wasn't being a coward. She was being realistic. And she was putting information out in the only way she felt that she could be until she decided that she could pay the cost. But yeah, we just need employers to stop sacking people, please. So you know about uh, PayPal banning or removing people's oh, yeah. accounts yeah. when they say things they don't like. And of course, you know about Indiegogo. Yeah, PayPal, CrowdJustice, Eventbrite, all of them. I think we need common carrier laws. You know, we need the equivalent of common carrier laws. You can't cut people off. Because now that we live in this technologically enabled society, they could do it with everything. They could make, they could get rid of your Zoom account. They could get rid of your Google account. Like, I'm very scared of all of these things. They can unperson you. It's, it's, a, it's a system of social control. We're, all re- we're working towards a system of Chinese-style con- social control. And when you know that you'd be the person who would be targeted, as I do, I, I, I hope I hope I was expressive enough of my um, concern for free speech before I realised 
how very much people wanted me personally to suffer for speaking. But like, my God, I really believe in it now. Everything I do, people are trying to stop me from speaking. I lost my first agent. Most publishers wouldn't take my book. I couldn't get a publishing deal in America. Nobody would pick up my audiobook. I was speaking at a conference for psychiatrists. The whole conference was cancelled. On and on and bloody on. You know, everything I do is made harder. This can't go on. Well, unfortunately it can. Look at China, it is. We've got to try and stop so it. So what's different? What's different about the US? This is this is quite ironic. So all of these companies in the US, they're like private companies, right? Private companies can do what they want. There is no central authority controlling these private companies like is happening in China. And yet we're getting the same results. Because if you think about it from the company point of view, I think my audiobook is an instructive example. So my book was already a bestseller when we looked for an audiobook contract, because I mean, I'm not a very experienced author. I only have one book, but it seems from what I've heard from friends that it's quite common to bring the book out and then record the audiobook. So there was no doubt that it would sell enough that they would make back whatever it cost them and make some money. But I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not JK Rowling. It's not going to be loads. And it is going to bring grief because the activists are going to write to anybody who's associated with me on any level and say, did you know that she's an anti-Semite? And in case anyone just hears that one sentence, I am not an anti-Semite. So it wasn't worth it to them. It wasn't worth it to a single one of the audiobook companies in the UK, not one. So I had to do it myself. And that's fine. And then people say, oh, you got it out anyway. Yes, I did. At more difficulty and with more effort and having to ask around and being lucky enough to have a son who's a sound engineer. And it's like that for everything I do. Everything. Everything is just made more difficult. But that's not visible out front. So that's that's the real restraint. That's the real silent censorship. So people say, how can you say you're censored? You're on all these podcasts. You got your book out, didn't you? By ceaseless effort that I would not have had to do on any other topic. And yeah, so the private companies are just making rational decisions. They're making rational, marginal decisions again and again that are incredibly impoverishing to our national debate. And, you know, when you think like the big value of free speech is that it gets us to better decisions. That's why we do it. It's not so that I feel good. It's not so that I can make money from my book. It's so they fucking well stop sterilizing children. That is why I wrote it. So we are sterilizing and we are going to sterilize more children because of all these commercial decisions made by these commercial actors that are very marginal to them. Don't get this person to speak. Don't get that audiobook contract, et cetera, et cetera. Children will be sterilized. That's the end result. Do you know about my compliance comics project? No. So I, <laughs> I've i been erasing all of the characters and words from Agents of Hag, leaving only the panels and word balloons. And I'm going to launch that on Indiegogo because it's completely compliant with all of their terms of service. Right. And the idea is that... If the campaign actually launches, if they actually approve it, I'll raise money for it and produce a product, which is the end result of this kind of suppression of speech. Like, this is what we will get. We will get empty crap. The other possibility is that they will not approve it, which will make it extremely clear that their trust and safety enforcement has nothing to do with their stated policies. Yeah, it's to do with people. Because this is... This is the most compliant thing ever. You know, you said if I do anything about this topic, it'll be suppressed. And it's like, it doesn't matter what topic I do stuff on. Anything I do will be suppressed. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I've said this recently to people and they've 
they've been surprised when I've said it and then they've understood what I'm saying. I'm not allowed to speak about anything else now. So I was a journalist at The Economist since 2005 and the jobs in turn that I did were education correspondent, Brazil correspondent, international editor, finance editor, events editor, uh, executive editor and Britain editor. I would expect to be somebody who was called upon to, for example, chair a conference on, um, you know, London as a stock market or uh, a day of thinking about education or um, something about Latin America. And indeed, that was the case before I wrote this book. But now the same marginal decision making comes in. It's not worth having me because if you're somebody who's doing a conference on Latin America, there's maybe a dozen people you could get to chair it. Why would you get the person that you're going to get complaints about? So everything, everything else that I would like to say is no longer available. And I was well aware that this would be the case. Um, You know, I'm not complaining. I'm just stating a fact. So then people say, why are you the monomaniac of this? (laughs) Somebody did write to The Economist once to the editor and you get CC'd in on um, the letters if they're about you. And this one was, um, you know, why do you still have the monomaniacal Helen Joyce on staff? (laughs) I'm somebody who's interested in many things and has written about many things. Uh, But yeah, they've made me monomaniacal in effect, not in fact, because I'm not allowed to speak about anything else. Well, they're wolves. I don't know if I find that helpful. Beware of gazing into the wolf for the wolf. Or wait, beware when fighting wolves, you do not yourself become a wolf. Yeah, that's it. Also, you're gazing into a wolf. <laughs> the wolf gazes also into you. You have beautiful eyes. I'm not sure this is working as a... <laughs> needs a bit of work. Needs work, as they say. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Helen, I think trans came out... It, did it come out at the end of 2020 or the <clears throat> early 2021? Uh, mid 2021. Uh, Ju- July, I think, 2021 in the UK and then September in the US. So I should I should I should say because I said it wasn't published in the US just to explain to people why it is available normally you would get a separate deal and they would turn it into an American book with American spellings and a new cover and maybe a new title and things so no no US publisher picked it up it was distributed kindly Simon and Schuster agreed to distribute it so I'm very grateful to that I wasn't completely I I didn't have to ship over boxes myself and ask people to mm. schlep around bookshops or anything but yeah so September 2021 for the US are you working on a, a follow-up book? You ask me difficult questions. Um, it's difficult to, to give a, an honest answer to this because it's not the answer that either my agent or editor wants to hear, which is I'm kind of stuck. I have some ideas. Um, I keep vacillating between them, but also I'm just completely overworked uh, on the things that I'm doing that still seem to me to be extremely important. I can't just put this book down like I thought I would be able to and move on. Um and this fight turns out to be something that's going to take a lot longer to to resolve than any of us would like. I mean, I'm having a ball, but I'm still thinking all day, every day about how to bring us back to sanity on this issue. I'm not ready to share my incredibly inchoate and half-assed thoughts. <laughs> but you're working on Sex Matters now? Yeah, so I work for them part-time, and m- most of the time. Um, so Sex Matters in Law and in Life is the strap line and uh, the longer version is when sex matters, it's sex that matters. So any, any, anywhere that we have to take account of what sex people are, it's the sex that they are that we have to take account of. And if you don't have to take account of people's sex, don't. So 
that seems a very simple set of principles. And in fact, UK law is pretty good on that. Like that's basically 95% of what's behind UK law. But practice has gone a very long way away from that. And there is, of course, the ongoing attempt to change the law, either by actually changing it or by pretending the words don't mean what they mean, which is very much the approach. Was Sex Matters founded by Maya Forster? Maya and others, yes. I wasn't one of the founders. I came in a little later. So it was an idea of a bunch of lawyers, basically. Uh, The lawyers who found Maya when she tweeted about losing her job and brought her in because she's the perfect claimant, because she's just so calm and rational. It's not easy to be a a famous claimant, a high-profile claimant. She's been fighting for four years, basically, on this. It's taken up her life. She's become very recognisable and you're treated like you're scum, you know, when you're a high profile claimant. You know, days and days of people insinuating that actually it was because you were such a hideous person that you lost your job. And it's still going on. Her um, Centre for Global Development haven't offered any sensible settlement. So she's having to go back again for a fourth hearing, uh, which would be the remedies hearing, what they actually have to pay for their bigotry. Uh, yeah, so she and the, some of the lawyers who were behind finding that case and then some other people founded it together. And it's a non-profit, not-for-profit company that um, campaigns for the law to basically stay as it is, by more or less, and uh, be actually implemented. I am such a drooling fangirl. I'm like, you and Maya are like the Beatles. You're like <laughs> John Lennon and Paul McCartney. If you ever come... To our like local turfy meetups. Well, well, that's very nice, but I don't know. I think we're like the naughty girls at the back of the class. At least that's what we looked like in that Women and Equality Select Committee. We were getting messages from friends saying, "Oh, you two, knock it off." <laughs> it's like they just made us giggle. It was iconic. Yes, that's one way of putting it. <laughs> well, for our listeners who have already devoured a trans and they would like to read more of your work what should where how should they go about doing that well i have a newsletter so i have a website there helenjoyce.com because there is some poor benighted woman called helen joyce somewhere else who got to helenjoyce.com oh. first so poor her i feel sorry for her <laughs> uh yeah have you, have you ever reached out to her i haven't is she getting a ton of hate mail not that i know of but like would it be helpful like that's i just I just don't know what I can do there that's any good. It's her bad luck. Um, yeah, so thehelenjoyce.com, and that's where you can read. Some of, my, some of my issues are in front of the paywall and some aren't. Um, I occasionally write in other places as well, but I'm active on Twitter and anything that I write is posted there. So it's H. Joyce Gender, which kind of foreshadowed mm. the fact that I knew I would never be allowed to write about anything else. You got captured by the gender activists. So it seems... Well, I guess we will wrap this up then. Thank you for listening, Turfs and Trannies, and thank you for joining us, Helen Joyce. Well, thank you for having me on. It's been great. You asked me different things, which is always stimulating. All right. Bye, y'all. Bye. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to Heterodorks. You can support us by visiting our page at anchor.fm slash heterodorks, or by supporting Nina Paley at patreon.com slash Nina Paley. You can also support us by writing a review on your favorite podcast site, such as Apple Podcasts. Thank you.